Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, my friend? Not too bad, man. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Slightly nervous. <laughs> because uh, if you follow our Twitter account, you'll already know this. We were a day late this week because over the weekend, my laptop exploded. Uh, my fault for playing video games on it, man. Yeah, well, you know, you can only have so much of a good thing before it tells you to go fuck yourself. So. Yeah, to be fair, I've absolutely brutalized that thing. It's put in, I got it secondhand in the first place and it put in a very, very good shift. So uh, RIP, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, <laughs> I had to go all the way to Mansfield. Bearing in mind, we live just outside London and Mansfield is half the country away and back to get the new shiny Cinementalist laptop, which is recording at the moment. So if we sound different, um, something went wrong. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you got an extraordinary discount and you got a little day trip out of it, so... I know, that's know. why I went all that way, yeah. Swings and roundabouts, it's all good. It was such a fucking good deal for this thing. I mean, this thing is the tits, it's the Starship Enterprise, but I've spent the past three days setting it up to record with all of our plugins and shit like that, and I've yet to test it for two and a half hours, which is what we're about to record now. So, fingers crossed it all goes well. If there's no podcast this week, well, there's no point saying that, is there? Because no yeah. one no one will hear it. Well, unless the lovely man you bought it off have happened to just give you an elaborately timed IED as a prank. Oh, that's possible, so then, yeah. So then definitely no more podcasts. I hadn't thought yeah. that dark, but uh, trust you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, back in action again. And yeah, as usual, we have so many film and TV reviews to get through. Oh, actually, do you have TV this week? I do, actually, for a change. I do. I have one motion picture and then one miniseries. See, this is all back to front this week. Because I know. I don't have TV. I have a film. because I you don't have, have any TV at all? I didn't have time to watch any because I watch it streaming through my laptop and my laptop was dead. Oh, yes, of So course. I picked a film and said, you're going to do the TV. This is going to fuck with the format entirely. Yeah. So but hey-ho. A couple of movies and some television, but it's me doing the television. But it's all the wrong way around, yeah. Yeah, this is... Um, it's, it's upside down week. It is, yeah, yeah. Upside down Up week. is down, black is white. Yeah. We're in Wonderland. Cats, friends with dogs, all of that, <laughs> yeah, et cetera. But yes, we normally start out with a bit of film news. And as usual, I have some. Would you like some film news, Liam? Go on then, colour me impressed. Okay, well, we've been chatting many, many times. It's been a constant source of news on the podcast as to the casting of Killers of the Flower Moon. Indeed. Uh, new edition this week. John Lithgow. Oh. John Lithgow. One of my favourite actors of all time. So we got, we got Leo De Niro, Jesse Plemons, John Lithgow. Oh, fuck. Who, who did we say last week was also there? You know what? I've forgotten entirely as well. But lots and lots of... Oh, no. Uh, Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser, yeah. Brendan yeah. Fraser, of course. Yeah, so yeah. This is really shaping up to have an interesting, a really interesting set of players, isn't it? It's kind of like the Harry Potter movies where every single British actor ever appeared in those. Yeah. And it seems like every single American actor is going to play in Killers of the Flower Moon. But yes, this is an article from EmpireOnline.com. Well, obviously it's been covered everywhere. The cameras have been rolling for a while now on Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, but that isn't stopping the casting announcements. John Lithgow is the latest addition to an already solid ensemble. In addition to both regular collaborators, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, Scorsese's latest has Lily Gladstone, Jesse Plemons, Jason Isabel, Sturgill Simpson, uh, William Bellew, there's a, a lot, a lot. Oh, and uh, yeah, screenplay by Eric Roth. I mean, we've covered Killers of the Flower Moon a million times, but yes, John Lithgow indeed. Sweet, yeah. Really, really, really love his acting ability. He was amazing in The Crown. Uh, did you want, I don't think you've seen The Crown yet, have you? No, but uh, his um, turn as Winston Churchill is, um, I know that it's uh, much lauded. Yeah, there's a lauded, beautiful episode. Sorry. <laughs> Lauded, lauded. <laughs> yes, lordy, lordy, laddie, yeah, yeah. There's a fantastic episode where it's um, about Churchill getting his portrait painted and sort of the relationship he has with the portrait painter and he painted himself and he gets obsessed with painting this uh, lake in the grounds of his house. And the portrait painter sort of has these chats with him and gradually starts to realise that the reason he painted the lake so often because it reminded him of the child him and his wife lost. And his acting ability in that, I mean, just the, the way he can emote with his eyes is just absolutely unbelievable superb actor and uh, I just want to see more of him essentially so yeah Killers of the Flower Moon once again fantastic cast it's almost like Martin Scorsese knows what he's doing <laughs> uh, this is uh, a different caliber of film this next article also from Empire Online um, Rise of the Foot Soldier Origins trailer brings <laughs> Vinnie Jones into the gangster saga 
Now, I know you're a big fan of uh, the Rise of the F Soldier franchise. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, it bests every other British gangster classic. You know, Move Over, Get Carter, The Long Good Friday, Layer Cake, all of that good stuff. You know, it's all about ROTF. <laughs> Fuck it. The, the, this story was told competently, at least halfway competently, in a way that I like once. One time, and it was back in 2007 under the title Essex Boys. Yeah. Sean Bean and Charlie Creed Miles. It's not a perfect film. But it is a pretty decent film if you're into that sort of thing. And it's a shite sight better than any of these steaming piles of monkey excrement. <laughs> and we have another one. That should be the subtitle, Rise of the Foot Soldier, Screaming Pile of well, Monkey it's just, Excrement. You know, the first one was a load of shit. The second one was a load of shit. The third one was actually monumentally good unintentional comedy gold. Because yeah. I do love Craig Fairbrass. And it is very, very funny, the third one. I do enjoy it for that reason and that reason alone. But, you know, Marbella was the same, exactly the same as the third one. They just switched a couple of things around temporarily. And now <laughs> Somebody's watching these. Someone is buying tickets, and I don't know who that person you know, is. This is like three men who were low-life wannabe gangster bullies and losers were killed in a Range Rover by bigger, scarier fish than them because they pissed off the wrong people. That's it. That's the story. And you have a bit of Colton Leach thrown in there as well, who massively exacerbates <coughs> his connection to the three deceased fellas. This is not an interesting story. No, it's, it been, it's not know, particularly. It's I not, don't know why there's been so many adaptations yeah, of it. I mean, Essex Boys came out, like Essex Boys was filmed four years after the actual killings took place. So they took a little bit of inspiration from that and they spun a sort of moderately entertaining and quite gritty, grim crime drama around it. You thought... And I, and I thought to myself, that was a re reasonably good movie, actually. I, I enjoy it because I'm into my crime cinema and I really love Sean Bean's portrayal in it. The, that's pretty good. And it just, yeah, there you go. Leave it alone. Would you like to hear the plot synopsis for Rise of the Foot Soldier, the fifth installment? Is it about um, Pat Tate, Tony Tucker and Craig Rolfe doing something again? Well, one, anyway. So this is uh, Rise of the Foot Soldier Origins, of course. So we're going back a bit here. Exploring the history behind recurring character Tony Tucker... It tracks his return from the Falklands and rise through the Essex underground against the backdrop of the 80s rave scene. With series regular Terry Stone returning as Tucker and Jones entering the fray as in Vinnie Jones as fearsome doorman Bernard O'Mahony. Cue the money, power, drugs and violence. Well, Bernard O'Mahony is, um, in real life, Bernard O'Mahony is ferociously critical of the rise of the foot soldier. Films. Oh, really? Yeah, he's. A, I wonder what he thinks about the Vinnie Jones. Costume. Bernard O'Mahony is actually a very respected, and I, I like him. I think he's a very good crime writer. He's very knowledgeable about UK organisations. I thought the crime. name rang a bell. Yeah, yeah I'm sure I've seen his. Books. Well, he was affiliated with the Essex Boys. He knew them all. He was involved in their gang, and he is like he wrote a Vice article not so long ago saying like these guys were losers. Yeah, yeah. They were they were a bunch of fucking losers. Like. Stop making these ridiculous films about them. Well, he must have signed. Now, now Vinnie Jones has been cast as him. He must have signed off on it, surely, to be, you know, to have his his <clears throat> image, if you like, his likeness, well, you, that kind of stuff. Possibly not. I mean, I don't know. Bernard surely, o I, I'm sure. Bernard O'Mahony's straight, you know, obviously, I don't know the man personally, but I, you know, I've looked up, you know, I've read a good bit of his bibliography and I've watched interviews with the guy. I would find it really, really surprising if he gave his blessing to this kind of thing. He must do if they're using your actual name, though. And, you know, I, yeah. Well, anyway, Vinnie Jones. Maybe, maybe the studio is backed by, you know, more money than he can, yeah. <laughs> than he's able to go up against. Perhaps, perhaps. But yeah, anyway, Vinnie Jones is going to be in a new Rise of the Foot Soldier film. Aren't we all excited indeed? Uh, this is a weird article. Um, this is from the BBC. I am legend screenwriter. Dismisses anti-vax claims based on film's plot. Have you seen anything about this? Well, I am legend with Will Smith. Yeah, well, then, well there's the, the book, of course, as well. Oh, yes, no, of course, yeah. It got turned into, like, um, Omega Man and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Kiva Goldsman uh, is the writer. And there's been a weird, you know, there's all these sort of um, anti-vax conspiracies going around, as there always is with any vaccination. Yeah, you're being going, microchips, they cause autism, Yeah, et Bill, et cetera, et Bill Gates is going to take control of your mum, all that yeah. kind of stuff. <laughs> But one of the pervasive theories that seems to be going around constantly at the moment is the author has actually had to step out and debunk it, is that um, people have been turning up saying, oh, no, no this, is, this is the plot of I Am Legend. And uh, I just don't get the connection. Well, really. what, what is the plot of I Am Legend? Well, okay, so reading from the article, 
The 2007 film starring Will Smith is about a failed attempt to genetically re-engineer measles to cure cancer, killing 99% of the world's population. Those who survive the infection turn into mutant vampiric creatures. Claims that something similar would happen to people receiving COVID jabs have been circulating on social media. And Akiva Goldsman has said, uh, with a load of full stops in it, so I'll read it out as verbatim, Oh my God, it's a movie. I made that up. It's not real. <laughs> apparently this has got real traction. Because I've seen people today um, like forwarding and retweeting all of these. People are actually saying, you know, oh, it, this is exactly the plot of I Am Legend. They were trying to warn us somehow. Oh, in the future, there'll be a vaccination that turned us all into vampires, zombies, etc., etc. It's well, the pop, you know, the popularity of contagion, which you know, as far as I'm concerned, and I believe you are as well, is a rather middling film. Yeah, it's okay. It's not amazing, but it, yeah, I, I do get that whole thing. Of it's it does okay. It does sort of closely now resemble real life events. I kind of get that. Yeah, there are certainly parallels, although this this is nowhere near as bad as the disease depicted in that film in terms of ramifications. Mm. All you need to do is watch the film to see that but um yeah just uh, <laughs> coincidences coincidences sometimes things line up it's not supernatural there's not some sort of weird you know multi-dimensional portent behind it it's coincidence yeah and you and in in and in this case and in many other cases really really grasping at straws and reaching yeah because you've nothing better to do. I mean, we don't normally um, go this serious on the podcast, but can I just say off the back of this article, if you're listening and you haven't been vaccinated yet, go and get your fucking vaccination. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't put it off. Don't believe conspiracy theories. You'll be fine. You probably won't if you don't get there it. Are, there are a minute amount of people who have serious health exemptions. Oh, sure. Some, yeah, yeah. some people... Obviously exempting Some people, Some but... people actually have severe allergies to vaccinations. Yeah, and let, that, me, let me qualify that then. If you are not getting it because you're procrastinating or if you're not getting it because you're reading conspiracy theories on the internet, please, please, please go and get your vaccination so we can all move on from this shite. Indeed. Indeed. Please indeed. stop being a fanny head. We've never done a public service announcement before and you ended it with, please stop it, you fanny head. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's passionate empathy for my fellow man and woman, sorry, my fellow homo sapien. Homo sapiens, yeah. indeed. Uh, back to films then. I just thought that was so weird I had to bring it up. I just saw that the other day. I'm like, holy shit. Like, we need to at the very least mention it because that is batshit. Um, back to normal <laughs> kind of stuff. How would you like a Nick Cage movie? A Nick Cage movie? Mm-hmm. It's not the unbearable weight of massive talent, is it? No, no. I haven't got any article about that this week. Um, there's been the first full trailer for the new Nicolas Cage movie, Prisoners of the Ghostland. Oh, yes, I've read a little bit about this. Yes, I am very, very interested in this. Yeah, yet to watch the trailer. We should have done before we started recording, actually. This sounds um, fucking mad. It does, yeah. I've got a little plot summary here. But um, Cage is quoted as saying, Ghostland is the wildest movie I've ever made. Which, coming from Nick Cage, is saying something. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, it's apparently a film about a criminal forced to wear a bomb suit and go into a wasteland to rescue the granddaughter of a crime boss from a bunch of mysterious nomad ghost people. Please don't suck. Please don't yeah, suck. Yeah, know, now, this is the thing, you know, because he's just come out with... Every, we've so spoken so many times about how, how awesome, awesome it is, how awesome a film is when Nick Cage nails it. When Nick Cage fucking nails it, he's able to elevate things into just astronomically brilliant territory. Mm -hmm. it? I mean, this obviously sounds very, very different to Pig, but he did. Pig was amazing. I couldn't just. I could still go on about Pig for hours and hours. It's a sublime film, and this plot line sounds number one perfect for Nick Cage. But I also have this really horrible pessimistic anxiety quadrant in my brain that they're going to fuck it up. Yeah, I mean... You know, I just really, really hope that it's going to go as good as it should be. Nick Cage <laughs> has blotted his copybook a few times with ones that are obviously there to pay off the castle debt, as yes. we have discussed before on the podcast. But actually, I've got a little bit more plot summary here, if you'd like it. Um, the movie is set in a place called Samurai Town, <laughs> where Cage is a bank robber imprisoned after a job goes horribly wrong. However, when the granddaughter of the town's warlord goes missing, the warlord offers the robber a deal. Put on this explosive suit and head into the wastelands and retrieve her or else. He does, of course, and what he finds is not at all what anyone is expecting. You know, Nick Cage, I actually find Nick Cage to have an aptitude at spotting when he's been given good material. Mostly, yeah. Well, what, uh, Go and ask, go and find Nick Cage being asked about things like Ghost Rider and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
he doesn't glow about that sort of thing. I imagine he was which, pretty cut up about that as well because he was really into the comic books, which is why he took the yeah. role in the first place. And those films were uh, weren't great. But like you know, you won't you won't find Nick Cage sort of gushing enthusiastically about his involvement in stuff like you know Willy's Wonderland and that sort of shit. But you will find him doing it about stuff such as Peak. I thought you liked Willy's Wonderland. That was yeah, quite yeah, a no, it's, it's, yeah, no, it's fun, but it only. Yeah, but the only reason, the only thing that stops Willy's Wonderland, there's one linchpin, and it's a very, very mildly lodged linchpin, and that is Cage. And this is a wordless performance. If it was anyone else doing this performance, the film would be completely, there would be no point whatsoever in watching it. But because mm. it's Cage, that somewhat justifies it. You know, that, that that's why I gave a moderately decent review of Willy's Wonderland is because Cage puts it on his shoulders and he sprints to the finish with the whole thing on his back. Well, here's hoping he does the same here. I mean, he says it's the wildest performance he's ever done and it's called Prisoners of the Ghostland and it will be out sometime soon. That there's no see, release date. To me, yet. there's something Lovecraftian about that. Or, you know, the human brain, brain can't process it. I mean, the wildest thing Nick Cage has ever done. I mean, Nick Cage knows who he is, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I've just scrolled a bit further down. I didn't see this earlier when I was reading through it. It actually does have a release date. It'll be released in theatres and on video on demand uh, September 17th. So oh, not what, far next away. Month? Yeah, I thought it was further away than that, but apparently um, not. Well, you know, I'm, I, love, I love Nicolas Cage and uh, that plot. Just sounds. I, I just can't resist it. I'm gonna have to. You all right if I jump on that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. uh, I'm. Yeah. I, you know what? Actually, we haven't done a film together in forever. Maybe uh, this Nick Cage piece with his wildest performance. Yeah, I mean, it's right up both our streets. I believe so. Maybe yeah. we'll uh, maybe we'll team up on that one. Double up on it. Yeah, we'll like you know tag team it. Watch, watch it the same night. You know, remotely. There's you know I don't need to come round and bother you. But, you know. Well, we, we, could go, we haven't been to the cinema since the whole pandemic started, like together, I mean. Yeah, I've got a horrible feeling. I hope I'm wrong, but I've got a feeling this is not the sort of thing that we're playing at Odeon. It's probably going to be at the Prince Charles. You reckon? This yeah. looks like a fairly big release to me so far. Well, well, we'll see. Anyway, one way or another, we will be reviewing it on the Cinematalism. If, if that is the case, we could take a nice little... Nice little saunter up to Leicester Square. It's nice. Yeah, and go and hold hands, get some dinner. I'll buy you a rose. Yeah. It'll be lovely. I love it. <laughs> don't don't rumble us on the podcast, mate. This is supposed to be strictly professional. <laughs> it's a date. <laughs> Okie dokie then. Well, that's the end of the news segment this week. Um, this is normally the point where I say Liam's got two films to review, but uh, films and TV, Liam. Yes. Whatever order you'd like to do it in, man. It's Crack getting on. strange in here, all this kerfuffery with the schedule. Yes, uh, kerfuffery has been the word for this week. Really has. <laughs> Well, um, I was looking through a few things over the past week, and I recalled that you, not too long ago, you reviewed uh, Black Spot, which is the French uh, mystery uh, television series, Netflix series, rather. Yep. Although I believe it didn't initially air on, was it TF1? France 2. All right, yeah, because um, there's also a, a Television Francais 1, I guess, T TF1. Right, Fr okay. Fr French television one, I suppose. Okay. Is France one. Yeah. And um, I uh, I actually was looking through Netflix, Rex, and this came up on it. And uh, this is a series that initially screened on TF1 in September of 2017. But uh, then in December, all of it got put on Netflix. It's a six-parter. And I thought, fuck it, you know, I'm going to watch it because it sounds fairly interesting. And Andy also did a Frenchy one from 2017, not too long ago. So I thought, if I watch it and it's good, I may very well do the same thing. And we've I also, have. We've also got a lot of listeners in France for some reason that we know have quite been able to figure out, although we appreciate it massively. Hello. So, hello. Hello. Bonjour. I, I like a lot of your... Stuff, yeah, <laughs> etc., etc. But uh, yeah, this is um, Lamont, uh, a, the Mantis, and uh, this is a six part mini series that, as I say, debuted on TF1 and then got sent to Netflix in its entirety a few months later. And um, in the opening, we have um, Inspector Dominique Ferracci, uh, played by Pascal Demelon. Him and his team of cops they've been called to the scene of a, a pretty fucking gnarly murder to put it mildly it's in a sawmill a guy has been tied to a chair um he's been tortured he's been emasculated and sitting next to his corpse on a table is his head so he has been done over pretty severely inspector farachi is looking around and uh he's surveying this utter carnage and um, something about this scene really, really bothers him. Not just what's happened in and of itself, but because it draws very, very strong parallels to something he dealt with a couple of decades prior. And uh, then we cut to um, a prison cell. 
somewhere, I think it's somewhere on the, the outliers of Paris. And uh, there is a woman in her cell watching the television and um, they're announcing this murder uh, that we previously in the opening scene. And um, the news anchor mentions that this murder is virtually identical to one committed 25 years earlier by Jeanne de Bear, otherwise known as Lamont the Mantis. And this is the very same woman sitting in this prison cell. In 1992, she kidnapped, tortured, mutilated, and murdered eight different men and um, was sentenced to life. It's been banged up ever since. And they're essentially worried that there's a copycat killer on the loose. One of her murders has been replicated down to the very last detail. I see. And the police are immediately thinking, are we going to get another seven of these? Because everything is exactly the same. And so, you know, Lamont, she's surveying the TV with sort of seemingly icy detachment. And then in the next scene, Inspector Farachi, he's back at the station and he receives a note. And the note is from Lamont saying, I can help you. So Farachi is a little bit quizzical, but um, he goes to prison to visit um, Jeanne. They meet, she's heavily, like, she's under very, very heavy security. And uh, so they meet in a sort of, in a secure room. And um, she says to him, you know, it's like, oh, you know, been a long time, etc. And she says to him, if this person is a copycat, if this person is um, replicating my murders intentionally, and there's going to be seven more of these, and they're going to do exactly all the things that I did, I might be able to lend you a helping hand in some way. Let me out and keep me under supervision in, you know, in a halfway house of some sort while the inquiry's going on. Let me out and I'll do everything I can to help you, everything possible I can to, to help you. I only have one condition. I want my primary liaison to be Damien Caro, who is um, an undercover task force cop who's um, been having quite a a bad time of things himself. And the reason she wants Damien Caro as her primary liaison is because he's her son. Oh, I see. Yeah. Her son. That she, she hasn't seen in 25 years since he was 10 years old. And um, he and his family, uh, they fabricated a story about his mother having died in a plane crash, et cetera, et cetera, because they didn't, he didn't want people knowing that his mother was the mantis, this diabolical serial murderer who brutally killed eight men and is you know, one of the nation's most notorious criminal. And so uh, he has tried everything he can to um, separate himself from any association with her whatsoever. So Farachi approaches Damien and um, makes him... He, he, proposes this to him. Damien is very, very enraged at first. He's like, you know, how dare you suggest anything like this? As far as I'm concerned, I don't have a mother. She died 25 years ago. I'm not fucking interested. But um, Fratchy asks him to deliberate on it. And indeed, he does deliberate. And uh, Damien is also juggling um, like quite a few domestic problems of his own. He's like married to him and his uh, wife, Lucy, have a very loving relationship. And he's a very good surrogate father to her own kid from a previous marriage. But his whole life, he has been haunted. But try as he might to sublimate it and move on, he has been haunted by the memory of his mother being carted away when he was 10 years old and never seeing her again after that, after learning what she was, what she had done. But he does, with some reluctance, he agrees eventually to meet her again and assist Farachi and his special team in uh, trying to locate this serial killer with this sort of, shall we say, specialised help of um, Lamont herself in conjunction with Damien and his mother. Kind of, it's, oh, uh, from the from the outset, it's very, very rocky. When he first sees her, he just treats her with nothing but anger and contempt, which is very understandable. But it's also it's them being thrust into the most unusual of reunions and um, her sort of immediately wanting to access him emotionally because he's her kid and her, him like wanting to keep it strictly professional and just completely dissociate himself from the fact that they are biological parent and child. He just wants to get on with this case. And it's like, okay, if this, if this is a requisite that's unavoidable, then so be it. I'll just have to get on with it. But it's so the it's the investigation running parallel to Damien and his mother's 
sort of rocky road to getting sort of familiarising themselves with one another again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's so it is a police procedural thriller with uh, just uh, but with a lot of emphasis on sort of familial dysfunction and the sort of non-negotiability of a parent's love and the origin of pathologies. So there's a hell of a lot of stuff going on here. I really, really liked this show. I really, really liked it a lot. I think um, uh, Carol, Carol, I'm just going to say, every time I try and say Carol with a French inflection, it sounds awful. Yeah. I just can't do it. Welcome to my world. Yeah, so I'm just going to say Carol, (laughs) going to say Carol Bouquet because every single... Carol Bucket. Yeah, you know, I tried, I I attempted, I I practiced the pronunciation because I I listened to how her name is pronounced Uh and I attempted pronunciation of it several times earlier and I just can't get it right. I don't know what the fuck is wrong with me. Yeah, no, no, no. next yeah. week try an Icelandic yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, very true. They've tripped me up a you know, million fucking times. And I've, yeah, and and I sort of feel um, you know that feeling when you know you're offending somebody. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, but yeah, Miss, uh, you know, Miss uh, Bouquet as um, Jeanne de Bear um, Lamont, uh, she's fabulous. She is absolutely brilliant. Her victims are presented as being not the most stellar of human beings. But that's not to say that the program makes an argument or a justification for vigilantism, because I don't think that it does. But I think it did go. She she didn't um she didn't kill these people in cold blood out of a you know, no other reason than you know, sexually sadistic primary psychopathy. She's not just a, you know, she's she's not a lost murderer. She had motive, substantive motive, but obviously, you know, the civilised people of mine would go, okay, well, still, <laughs> you can't go around solving life's problems like that. Just by murdering people. Yeah, no. just by murdering people. But, even, but like, even though she is, um, even though the character of um, Jian is presented as, um, she, she is very complex and layered because there's, there's a lot of suggestion there that she does really love Damien. I mean, every single time she sees him, she says, Bonjour, Damien, in this very, very creepy way that's kind of comparable to Lecter. <laughs> Everyone always does a Lecter yeah. in a prison cell, don't they? But, no, but, no, but, she, but she has this excellent, uh, I think she has this really, really deft way of uh, nuancedly mediating between this completely icy, cold and manipulative um, demeanour and... Um, the moments that betray uh, her human elements, the human elements that are still intact within her. Because as far as everyone's concerned, this woman is a completely ice-cold psychopath who does not and cannot feel anything for anybody and is just a complete maniac who is uh, unequivocally a danger to every single person around her. But this is not necessarily the case. She is very scary. Honestly, they're like... Every single time this woman came on screen, I did feel a slight chill. I don't want I don't want to be like, you know, melodramatic with that, but honestly, I think that her performance is really, really effective. Bouquet is very, very scary and subtly unnerving in this. And um she does like she she does a great job of uh, treading the 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 ground of uh, you know ambiguous intention. Uh, you know, great performances uh, from Testo, from Demelon who plays Farachi, like all of the cast are really, really great. The twists, because the French do love their mad, mad twists. There's no getting around that. I've watched so many of their TV shows and films that that is, that is just an axiom. But the twists are out there. But all in all, I think that Lamant is a really, really strong thriller. I love the performances. I really like the way it's shot. It's got that, it's got that perfect balance of uh, sort of uh, apocalyptic grimness and real, real convincing poignancy in there. So it's scary and it's weird and it's grim, but it's also touching in ways that you might not expect and yeah I, yeah so um yeah lament i really liked it it's good it's only six parts you can drag it down on netflix immediately i think i think it's worth a gun there you go tv of the week recommendation yeah. from liam I yeah get on out, mate. get on that one and then my motion picture getting back to a little bit of schedule normality i watched the forever purge <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad you did <laughs> yeah directed by um everardo gout so, I don't know if his name is supposed to be pronounced like Goo or Go is he or Mr. Creosote's brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah Everardo Gout. One more Waffer uh, Thin. Yeah, words. it's only Waffer Thin. <laughs> and uh, written by James DeMonaco, who inaugurated the franchise. He was the primary creator of the franchise with the very first Purge back in 2013. Oh, how we loved that glorious, groundbreaking film, didn't we? Well, 
This is the fifth instalment, and after completing this film, I read that there's a six on the way as well. So wow. it gets even better and better. So in the <laughs> so yes, I think most people are probably familiar by now. The Purge, it's a 12-hour period across the United States where all crime, including murder, is completely legal, and all the emergency services are suspended from 7 p.m. until 7 a.m. I think most people, even if you haven't seen any of them, it's been bandied about so much for some reason. And parodied a lot. Yeah, yeah and parodied yeah. a lot, which it fucking deserves. So, yeah, everyone, so the the NFFA, the national, the new, sorry, the new founding fathers of America, extreme right-wing totalitarian political party, they were the initial uh, creators of the purge. And uh, this film takes place after they have been uh, out of the running, you know, as the POTUS, or I guess in their case, maybe po. No, it wouldn't be POTI because POTUS is an acronym with the the ruling government. I'm, I'm getting all yeah. I don't know why I'm trying to do like you know Latin pluralization and all that shit <laughs> for the forever purge. F- f- yeah. Fuck off, Liam. <laughs> but um, yeah. So the new founding fathers of America, they're voted back into power and they reinstate the purge. So uh, we're introduced to um, a whole host of wonderful characters. So we have uh, Juan and Adela who are a uh, Mexican couple. They have illegally crossed the border to try and flee havoc in Mexico. They eventually settle uh, just outside Austin in Texas, and they get a job um, for working for the Tucker family, which is a sort of uh, family of old-money Texan ranchers. And uh, the sort of overall patriarch of the group is uh, Caleb Tucker, played by the wonderful Will Patton, who is always very reliable. And uh, his son, Dylan, played by Josh Lucas, who is a bit more of a quite unpleasant, you know, very right-leaning libertarian, just sort of unpleasant redneck who immediately communicates this rather racially charged disdain for anyone who isn't American. And uh, so this is uh, Juan and Adela's, you know, they've just reached the United States. So uh, this is the first time they would have ever have dealt with uh, the phenomenon known as the purge. Given the reinstatement of the new founding fathers of America, white supremacy and nativism have been on the rise. So we've got a brand new, brand new Mexican migrant couple, you know, fresh like fish out of water, fishes out of water in the United States, just as this radical right-wing fascist party has been implemented and is reinstated probably one of the worst suggestions that anyone has ever had <laughs> you know which is fueled uh, with a very strong um undercurrent of extreme racism and xenophobia sure so it's like yeah good times for everyone right from the outset absolutely so um it hits 7 p.m uh, the Tucker family, they, you know, batten down the hatches in their wonderful mansion. They, you know, they put all of the, they guard everything off. All the shutters go down. Uh, Juan and Adela, they make their way to uh, sort of a high security migrant camp where there's armed guards. You know, everyone is sort of getting in position to see out the night, get this purge over and done with for, you know, at least another year. So um, everyone is in their respective little hidey holes um, you know, it cuts. You get you get a lot of uh, you know mishmash. Not really montages, but it cuts to cuts back and forth between scenes of people looking round silently in a mix of fear and deliberation, thinking, "Oh, you know, I hope, I hope, you know, these nutty purges don't break in and fuck us up." Which you know they don't. People all manage to make it through the night. The folk, the ensemble players do anyway. And um, so it gets to seven a.m. and everyone just uh, goes, "Okay, well, that's that over with for another annum." Let's get back to work and go about our days and do whatever we were doing. But would you for you know, would you believe it? Some people don't want the purge to end. You might have guessed that from the title of the film. What the Forever Purge? The Forever Purge, yeah. Oh my god, it's, all, is, uh, yeah. it's making sense now. There are some yeah. people who have just decided, no, we don't want the purge to stop twelve hours after it begins. We, we want anarchy forever. Yeah, we don't want it to ever stop. And so the forever Welcome purge, to the Thunderdome. the forever purge, or the ever after purge, which is the another the other name for it. This is something that is um, primarily being spearheaded by uh, sort of a lot anarchic, extreme right wing, radical terrorist uh, groups in the country who have decided, no, fuck it, fuck the new founding fathers. I don't care. Like we want to 
we want to cleanse the United States. We want to disinfect it. They use a lot of very sort of Nazi-esque ideology for their endeavour. And so, you know, we're coming for anyone who isn't with us or anyone who wasn't born on American soil or anyone who doesn't look American, we're coming for you. So don't try to hide because we will get you. So all of the main dudes and gals have to just try and evade all of these nutty, marauding, forever purges and try and make it to some sort of sanctuary before everyone gets mullered. That's the long and the short of it. Okay, yeah, I'm with you. So, um, ever since this franchise started, they've uh, completely mutilated this premise. It's terrible. The first 20, the very first purge, 2013, I really, really liked that synopsis. I was looking forward, so I was anticipating it coming out. With, you know, with some degree of excitement. I thought, what a fucking great idea. A period of 12 hours where all crime is legal all across the United States. So imagine the potential for that. Imagine what you could do. Imagine, you know, the, you know all of the uh, possibilities, you know, if you, were given, if you were given that allowance. But no, it was entirely predicated on a home invasion <laughs> with this very cheap, gimmicky, uh, pretext that wasn't even explored properly. And yeah, it's every, one of the great yeah, wasted film concepts. Absolutely. Isn't it? Yeah. And with every single film, they think that they've been expanding the concept and exploring new avenues of possibility. But no, they've just been making it thinner and thinner and thinner. With it, with each with each successive purge instalment, you actually realise, fucking hell, the first one in relative terms wasn't actually that bad. <laughs> because this film is so it's it's okay if you want a load of set pieces. You know, there's loads and loads of violence. It ambles along at quite a good place. You know, it's an hour and 44 minutes long and it doesn't really feel longer than that. If you're a gore hound and you like your loud, shooty, stabby, smashy, bangy, fun mayhem, it's got that in spades. It's got you covered there. But other than that, very pedestrian acting, all of the political messaging in it uh, about essentially how, you know, there's these American old school Southern types and there's these Mexican migrants. And would you believe it? They won't see this ordeal out unless they band together mm. and get over their differences. Now, is there anything wrong with that message in and of itself? No, not at all. But the way it's done here is so... It is, a, it is sledgehammer subtle. It sounds really on the nose. Yeah, it is yeah. It phenomenally on the nose. It is, it is sledgehammer subtle. It is so clunky. It's got such painfully obvious, unnatural dialogue about how, you know, we shouldn't be racist... We're all citizens, you know, we should all, you know, anyone can be a proud American as long as someone has the values of America. America should be about community. We shouldn't be um, delineating and being tribalistic along these lines. We're all human beings and we, we all have some moral fundament that bands us together against all the scumbags out there who just want to kill anyone and everyone just for the fuck of it for the very nefarious fascistic purposes. You know, we are, we've got more in common with each other than we do with those fucks. So why not just get over these differences and let's, there are many ways that you could have pulled off that narrative and it would have made a good movie. But the way it is handled here is just so, there's no finesse, there's no nuance. There's no, I didn't believe any of the performances. I didn't, I, I wasn't able to get emotionally invested. It was just a bunch of people on the screen saying stuff and then occasionally there's a gunfight and a knife fight and an explosion and then it's all a sort of rosy yeah you know we shouldn't dislike and mistrust each other because we never know when we're gonna need each other and then the credits rolled and it's about that level of memorable <laughs> so yeah so swing and a miss but, so, uh, yeah, the Forever Purge, is it one to check out? No, not really. Yeah, I, I hate to say it, but uh, I hate to prejudge a film, but having seen several of the Purge films so far, I didn't have high hopes. No. And uh, it sounds like uh, sounds like that was right. But, you know, we don't get to pick and choose. It's a popular franchise and it's uh, the hottest one out at the moment. So, you know, did I, would I, did I, what, did I look at it and say, yeah, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to lie to you. I did. But we're critics, so. hey ho. <laughs> waste our time for you <laughs> so you don't have to absolutely yes it should be the tagline for the podcast I'm going to stick that somewhere well we waste our we time we waste our time so you don't have to yeah, yeah. but yeah no so yeah one mini series that is worth checking out and is cool and um, yeah one instalment in an ongoing film franchise that really needs a bullet in its head so fair enough there we go not all shit at least 
Okay then, well this is weird Because this is normally the point where I say Ah, TV of the week And it's not This week I decided to do a film instead it's Movie of the week Yes, it's well yeah, I guess It can't be the forever purge, can it? Nah. Let's find some sort of merit in this podcast And I guess it's all up to me um, Yeah, I didn't have time to watch any uh, series this week Because I spent so long fucking around with my laptop And was reduced to ordinary terrestrial television God there are a few things worse for a TV critic, to be quite honest, to be cut off <laughs> from all your streaming services. But I decided to review Jungle Cruise. Oh, yes. The latest family fun adventure. Yeah, the latest Disney family fun adventure starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, getting a lot of promo at the moment. Uh, directed by... Well, who cares, really? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you just want to know what it's about, don't you? Why don't I just go straight <clears throat> into the plot setup and then we'll see where we are from that point. Okay, this opens, as you get the Disney logo with the castle and this sort of shooting star going over the top of it, a very familiar song started to play. Um, it was Nothing Else Matters by Metallica. What? Yeah, <laughs> immediately. That was my reaction as well. What? I, sat, I, I literally, I sort of sat forward like someone, you know when you sort of hear something in the distance, like, is that someone outside my window? Is what, hang on, that's, that's Nothing Else Matters, except it sounds different. The guitar tone's different and all that. Would you believe it? Metallica actually re-recorded Nothing Else Matters for this film. Um, what? I have no idea. You know, it's got that sort of um, that finger picked <clears throat> guitar intro, with like the little arpeggio sliding thing, and then it goes into the big heavy guitars. Yeah, yeah, so they've just re-recorded it for this film, which I thought was utterly bizarre. But anyway. Next I, up, remake of The Lion King with Enter Sandman. I know. It's a, because reasons. I, <laughs> and weirdly, I actually prefer the new recorded version to the original. And oh, really? I'm a Metallica fan as well. <laughs> I was sitting there going, oh my God, who's covered this? They're going to butcher it. No, it's actually Metallica and it sounds kind of good. But anyway, yeah, bizarre start. And then we get an opening sequence, a little montage sequence with a narration over the top. And I kind of love it when I review a film and they do this because all I get to do afterwards is I go back and I write it down and then I read it out on the podcast because it's essentially the, all the exposition preloaded at once. So here we go. This is the narration that's read out at the start of Jungle Cruise. All legends are born in truth. From the Amazon came the legend of the tears of the moon. A single petal from the great tree could cure any illness and break any curse. Over the centuries, many expeditions went searching for the healing tears of legend. At this point, you get some footage of conquistadors in the jungle in sort of like the 1500s ah. kind of thing, chopping and hacking their way through. None more famous than the conquistador Don Crope Agueri, who was determined to possess the tears of power. But the jungle protected the tears. History will tell you his journey ended in failure, but legend tells more that he was found by the guardians of the tree and nursed back to life, that he demanded they give him the sacred arrowhead, the key to finding the tears of the moon, that Agueri attacked, but the jungle defended. Agueri and his conquistadors were taken, cursed, never to leave sight of the river again, unable to leave or die. Or so the legend goes. Wow. And we cut away from the montage now to reveal that it's being delivered by Jack Whitehall, of all people. What? Jack Whitehall as uh, McGregor Halton. Now, this is set in the early 1900s, World War I kind of era. And McGregor Halton, Jack Whitehall, is uh, delivering this speech to the Royal Society in London in one of their big oak-panelled halls. And he's there to appeal to the old explorers there in this old historical society for access to their archives because he wants to look through and start planning a expedition out to the jungle in order to find this arrowhead and the, the tree of life and all of that bollocks, etc. As he's delivering this speech, and it's not going particularly well, he's being overlooked from the balcony above by Emily Blunt, who's playing Dr. Lily Houghton, his sister. And as it's not going well and people are starting to jeer and shout, she sneaks away. And she begins to sneak her way through the Royal Society halls. As she's creeping about, she runs into Prince Joachim, played by Jesse Plemons. Prince Joachim. Prince Joachim, yes. Uh, well, actually, it's spelt J-O-A-C-H-I-M, but he is very much a German. And the most cartoonishly, I mean, this is pre-Nazi, but you know those sort of allo-allo German accents? 
That's what Jesse Plemons is doing in this, okay? Wow. So he's Prince Joachim, and he is also wandering the halls of the Royal Society. She bumps into him. They have a little bit of back and forth, a bit of chit-chat. She manages to sneak past him and get into one of the private rooms and sneaks away around and finds this big chest underneath one of the desks there. She prizes open the chest, and she finds inside all of these sort of exotic tribal artifacts. And inside a box, she finds the arrowhead, the mystical magical arrowhead that they mentioned in the intro. It's at this moment that she is rumbled by members of the Royal Society and a chase sequence breaks out in which she's chased around the room. It's full of books. It's got one of those sort of, um, you know, those ladders on wheels that you get in a library with very tall bookshelves in it. Yeah. She's on one of those. She's sort of getting whisked around from one side to the other. She ends up breaking through a window on this ladder suspended over a street in London. Her brother, meanwhile, has been kicked out downstairs. He's waiting for her to drop from this ladder. And Jesse Plemons, doing the world's worst German accent, is now chasing after her as well. So she drops down to the street below, they jump on a bus and abscond with the mysterious arrowhead. Is, and- it, is, it, is, it, is it the German equivalent of, uh, you know, the, the English bloke going, good morning? Yeah, kind of, kind of. It, Fucking It's hell. kind of hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, off they go. And they decide that now they've got the arrowhead, what they're going to do is book themselves a trip to the Amazon. They've got their plane tickets and off they go. We then get a cut and we're introduced to Frank Wolf played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I'd never a guess. <laughs> now, Frank has a small steamboat that he's running on the Amazon River, and he is giving people trips up and down, explaining the local flora and fauna. This is sort of where it ties into the Jungle Cruise Disney ride upon which this is based. I've actually been to Disney World and I've been on Jungle Cruise. And essentially what it is, is it's a water ride where you get taken around, like a hippo's head pops up and all this kind of stuff. At points, there's a river rapids section and there's all these sort of uh, an alligator pops up over here and somebody shoots a dart over there and there's a Disney actor at the front of the boat pretending to drive it and he's making bad jokes and quips along the way. So this is essentially what Frank Wolf, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is doing in this. He's giving these tours. He's making all these really bad corny jokes that people don't get and sort of groaning at constantly. And he's giving them this very, very manufactured tour around the Amazon jungle. He's got all these sort of um, Rube Goldberg kind of contraptions rigged up to make things happen at certain points and he gets paid at the end. So anyway, he drops off his latest batch of tourists back at this sort of Amazon river port and he is confronted by, and it gets better, um, Nilo Nemalato, played by Paul Giamatti. Oh, wow. (laughs) Who, for reasons I absolutely cannot discern, is kind of like an old school Italian gangster in sort of the white suit and the wide white brimmed hat, except he's running the dock and this Amazon river base port, essentially. And he controls all the ships there. And he's very angry with Frank Wolf because Frank Wolf owes him a lot of money, um, especially for the engine for his steamboat that he's bought recently. And so Nilo Nimalato takes away Frank's engine and Frank is left sort of stranded on the dock. Meanwhile, McGregor Houghton, Jack Whitehall, and Lily Houghton have now arrived in the Amazon and they're wandering around taking in the sights. They're at this dock. They're going past all sort of monkeys in cages and people, there's a tarantula scorpion fight going on. Jack Whitehall is um, completely terrified of everything, by the way, as if you couldn't have guessed that already. Uh He's very, very much the comedy foil. But Oh yeah, that sounds brilliant. Yeah, but Lily Houghton, (laughs) Dr. Lily is uh, extremely insistent that she's going to book them a cruise up the river to try and find the mysterious tree. She ends up going to the office of Nilo Nemalato. However, when she gets there, she finds the door locked and there's someone behind it. The person behind it is Frank Wolf, who has snuck in to try and steal some money from Nilo Nemalato. So they have this conversation back and forth where she thinks he's him and he thinks she's her and it's, there's all this sort of comedy caper back and forward kind of thing. And she is essentially after Nilo for a boat up the river. Frank sees an opportunity here and says, why don't we go downstairs and get some dinner? And while we're having dinner, uh, we can discuss terms. So they go downstairs, they order a couple of steaks. Frank obviously decides to put this on Nilo's tab, seeing as he's pretending to be him at this point. And they're bastering backwards and forwards about the price. And he says, look, you don't want to go all the way up there. It's the most dangerous part of the river. You're never going to find what you're looking for. It's all myth and legend. You're essentially on a fool's errand. Their dinner is interrupted by the real Nilo Nemalato. Lily quickly puts two and two together that she's been talking to the wrong person. And as they're at this stonewall situation, as they're staring at each other going, well, what do we do now? And I'm not making this up. I absolutely promise you. They are interrupted by a jaguar. A jaguar walks into the bar. 
where they've, they've <laughs> had this weird, awkward situation. Jaguar walks in and Frank Wolf fights off the Jaguar. They have a, a big back and forth, to and fro, bottle smashing all over the place. Eventually, the Jaguar runs away and Dr. Lily has been convinced that now Frank is obviously a very adept and powerful man. Yes, he, was, he lied to her at the start and yes, he kind of betrayed her, but he's obviously the man for the job. She will pay him the money that he's owed for the engine for his boat to this to Paul Giamatti for some weird fucking reason. And they're going to go out the river together to find the tree of life. Pursued, and I bet you've forgotten about this, pursued by Prince Joachim, Jesse Plemons, who turns up in the Amazon in a World War I U-boat. Okay. Are you with me? <laughs> Just about, yeah. Just about, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty contrived and kind of all over the place, but I probably made more of a meal of that than I should. It's just, there's a load of, why are you here? And what are you doing in this? And <laughs> who the hell's, okay, why do we need the bit where she thought he was him and he thought she was her? And I, 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 I don't understand. Anyway, yes, we're all on a quest together up the river Amazon to find the mysterious tree of life. And there's some involvement with uh, old school conquistadors and I will leave it there. Okay. Um, like I said, I've been to Disney World and I have been on the Jungle Cruise. And one of the things that makes Disney World cool, I mean, I went when I was an angry teenager. I was one of those teenagers with long hair and a shirt that was too big for me with a metal band on the front of it and was very, very cynical about everything. So and the they, only thing that's changed is your age. Yeah, now I've grown into <laughs> a long hair guy with a metal t-shirt that's very, very cynical about everything. I mean, you know, but I like to think over the years I've sort of upped my positivity. But I have to admit, even as a grumpy, cynical teenager, when I went to Walt Disney World, I kind of, I was Magic Kingdom and I went to Animal Kingdom and all that, but the Jungle Cruise is in the Magic Kingdom. Um, you kind of have to love it because it's like the world's greatest movie set. The level of detail on everything is kind of fantastic. It's the props, the set and setting, the, um, the, the way everything is so involving. It's really trying to pull you into all these different kind of worlds. And it's essentially a big park of set pieces, one after the other after the other. This film is very much the same, which is kind of cool. I mean, it's fun which is about the best thing you could say for a Disney comedy caper. And comedy caper is probably the best way you can describe it. I very much got the impression that this is Disney does Indiana Jones. See, when I first, when I first saw the poster, I, I, my immediate thing, because I know you said it was the Amazon, but my immediate thing was, um, like, are they, is this like some weird The Rock in a Disney reboot of the African Queen? Well, yeah, is he doing like the Bogart thing? Also, the trailer makes it look very, very much like Jumanji as well. And I was watching that thinking, when the trailer first came out, I thought, hmm, this just seems like they're cashing off the fact that Jumanji was a surprisingly good film. And let's send The Rock off to the jungle again. However, it is different. I mean, yeah, like I said, I, I think this is Disney does Indiana Jones, which is kind of fun. There's a lot of set pieces in it and they're extremely well done. Like I said, Jesse Plemons chasing everyone around doing a German accent in a U-boat in the Amazon is kind of inspired, I think, because it's absolutely <laughs> mad. It knows it and it revels in the madness. Jesse Plemons is doing the super comedy accent, but it kind of works because you know the caliber of actor that he is. And then he's totally sending it up to the rafters for a Disney film. And that kind of, you know, sort of pulls you through the thread. Also, it's relying very, very heavily on Dwayne The Rock Johnson's charisma. And that's not a bad thing to hang your hat on because he is genuinely charismatic. He does have it. He does have it, yeah. Yeah, he's this wise-cracking... His whole thing is he makes constant bad jokes that he knows are bad. But, you know, again, harking back to the Jungle Cruise thing where the actor at the front of the boat would make silly jokes that would eventually make you laugh. It's kind of playing with that idea all the way through. And it hangs on it and it rests on it. And overall, I mean, he is the rock that holds the, the film together. I mean, it's such an obvious analogy. I have to fucking use it. There are some flies in the ointment. Um, Jack Whitehall, for a start. I knew it as soon as your, his name left your lips. He's just not a very good actor. And um, he's not doing... He's not a very good comedian either. Yeah, he's, he's not doing badly in this. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a bad performance. That would be unfair. I mean, he's playing a dandyish fop comedy foil, which is about his level. I mean, that's, that's the thing that Jack Whitehall can do. And he sort of just about holds it together... And most of the time I find Jack Whitehall very irritating. I found him slightly irritating in this, which is an improvement. So well done, Jack well, Whitehall. From very irritating to slightly irritating. Yeah, yeah. I, I, 
he's not terrible throughout it, but he's definitely not up to the same caliber as the other actors. Emily Blunt does a fairly good job, but she hasn't got much to do either. She's essentially Dr. Lily, the uh, incredibly competent, very intelligent. She's the sensible one while all the men are off doing fightings and things. She finds a sensible way around it. There's a little character can see about the fact that she can't swim and maybe she's a bit too big for her boots, but these are all fairly cardboard cutout characters. And that's sort of where half the problems lie as well. In that, the characterization is just not fleshed out enough. It's no great spoiler to say that Frank and Lily end up uh, having a romantic relationship. Everyone knows that's where the film's going to go. Except it sort of happens in an instant, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's like they knew that's where the film was supposed to go. They knew the audience knew that's where the film was going to go. So So no exposition necessary. (laughs) Why bother fleshing it out? Yeah, yeah. There's sort of once they kind of hate each other for most of the film. And then there's one scene where The Rock reveals something about his past. It's actually quite a good twist, actually, as uh, story beats go. There's a fairly decent little reveal in the middle. It's actually kind of, huh, interesting. I didn't expect that much from this script. That happens. And then all of a sudden, they're kind of in love. And then about 20 minutes later, when the film ends, they're absolutely in love. And that's as much as the romance is fleshed out. Getting married, getting a mortgage. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all fairly, fairly cardboard cut out. I'm sorry. I just want to go back to Jack Whitehall for a second. There is one thing I definitely need to point out. Um, At one point, uh, his character reveals himself to be gay. And this is something I've noticed Disney doing a lot of recently, is they've decided very much to go with the modern movement of uh, more representation for people of the LGBTQ community and all that kind of stuff. And that's all well and good. However, in this film, it is absolutely shoehorned in. Yeah. It's a five-minute scene. In fact, I'm not, I don't think it's even five minutes in a two-hour-long film where um, himself and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Frank Wolf, sit on the side of the Amazon River. They're taking a break for a moment. And McGregor is talking about uh, why he came on the river cruise in the first place and why he's sticking with his sister. And he reveals this is because um, he had an offer of marriage from a young lady. And I believe he puts it as he turned down the offer because he had other interests in a very loaded way. And Frank goes, oh, other interests. You know, so they're making it very clear that, you know, he was essentially ostracized from society for being homosexual at a time when homosexuality was uh, very much frowned upon and would get you sort of, um, especially in their high society background, get you kicked out of that sort of thing. And The Rock raises his drinking flask to McGregor and goes, well, good for you. And then the film continues. And it's literally the most, like, I absolutely get why Disney is trying to do more inclusion for people from the LGBTQ backgrounds. I think that's absolutely right and definitely a good thing to do. I don't think that's what those communities mean when they say they want more representation in mass market media. You don't just want a five-minute scene where a character goes, by the way, I'm gay, and everyone goes, good for you. And the film film continues again. It's really, really fucking weird. It comes out of nowhere, and it's just... You could have done so much with that as well. There's been a lot touted from Disney, actually, about this film having the most openly gay Disney character because he says he's gay once, and then the film continues. I I just don't see the point of doing it like that. If you're going to do LGBTQ characters, and you absolutely should, then do them as... It, that's more than just a footnote in their personality. You know what I mean? It's more than a footnote to the people that have those feelings. Please at least do it as some level of justice. Handing it off that way doesn't work. So yeah, I mean, Jungle Cruise, it's got some issues. Um, it's a bit baggy in the middle and the ending as well, I thought was pretty rushed. All of a sudden it gets up to a climactic point and then 10 minutes later, everything's over and everyone's gone home for tea. And it just felt like one of those endings that's just, they got to a level with the script where they're like, shit, we're going to have to make this soon. Let's put everything together in the way you knew it was going to come together from the very beginning of the film. Nice twist in the middle that they obviously spent a lot of time writing. At the end, they just go, and everybody lives happily ever after. And, you know, it's a Disney movie. What more do you expect? But I think it could have done better with that. But overall, I mean, I feel like I've been kind of harsh on it. It's not a bad family film. It's not a bad ride. It is a theme park of a film. It's there to just be mad, to be entertaining, to be swooshy, to be kinetic, to be vibrant. And it succeeds at all of those things. Yes, the characterization is flat. Yes, some of the performances are not great. And yes, I'd like better writing for a fair amount of it. However, overall, it's actually quite a fun experience. I think kids will get a lot out of it. And I think it's one of those films that you can take your kids to as an adult and have a good time at the same time. And you can take Granny as well. 
and she'll probably take, get a kick out of it. A lot of the gags land and landed in ways that I wasn't expecting. There's a couple of sight gags that work quite well. Uh, there's a lot of really bad humor as well, but it's obviously bad. It's there as part of the, you know, the Rock's character. That kind of works for it. It's not a bad piece. It's better than I was expecting. And I know that's like damning with faint praise. But overall, even though it's got problems, it's actually quite a pacey adventure film with kind of a 70s Indiana Jones kind of feel to it. And you know what? That's kind of good enough for me. So overall, I, I think it's, yeah, it's it's not bad. It's not a bad experience. That's good. That's a nice thing, man. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just good, good for the family. Yeah, I, yeah, I just don't expect too much from it. But like I said, the, the price of entry, you know, Jesse Plemons doing a German accent, chasing the rock down the Amazon in a submarine. I mean, yeah, come on. That's, that's, got, that's got to be worth eight quid, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose it is, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's got its ups, it's got its downs, but overall, I kind of enjoyed it. It sounds kind of, yeah, it sounds like a decent dose of popcorn. Yeah. yeah. yeah with, I mean, you, you know, with the shortcomings that you mentioned about it, but, you know, yeah, as long as you're not going in, like, expecting anything Oscar-nominatable. No, I mean, it was never supposed to be either. It does what it says on the tin, and I'm, I'm kind of fine with that. Kind of fine with that. Cool, yeah. Okie dokie then. Well, let's finish off with some trivia. Uh, this week, I decided to do, off the back of Jungle Cruise, of course, a bit of trivia on the Magic Kingdom. Oh, yes. The yeah, original yeah. Disney World. Disney World. Disney World. Disney World. Disney World. You don't pronounce the D. Disney World. Well, you do in England. So <laughs> you're English. But yeah, we've done Disney trivia before, but uh, the Magic Kingdom itself actually has some interesting facts about it, so I thought we'd close out with some of those. Absolutely. Let's kick off with this one. What makes the Magic Kingdom feel magical isn't just what you see, hear, touch, or taste. It's also what you smell. Imagineers recognize that scents are good at triggering feelings and memories in people. So the park uses aroma diffuser technology known as smellitizer machines to pump specific smells into the air through vents near the ground. Different areas emit different aromas. For instance, you'll notice sweet smells wafting from the shops on Main Street, while other smells are specific to the locale of the attractions like gunpowder and musky ocean waters filling the air around the Pirates of the Caribbean. Yummy. Yeah. There you go. Magic Kingdom. Smells different. (laughs) (laughs) The Magic Kingdom is a land of fantasy, not rubbish. That's why there are so many trash cans all around the place. Walt Disney himself studied park guests at Disneyland and found that they walk around 30 steps before dropping their trash on the ground. And that's why there's a trash can every 30 steps in the Magic Kingdom today. And that statistic uh, bo- absolutely boggles my mind. What do you mean every 30 steps you drop litter? I fucking don't. What kind of fucking slob drops fucking litter every 30 steps? <laughs> there are many rules that Disney theme parks cast members have to follow, but two of the most important in guest relations are either that you should never point with one finger or answer a question with, I don't know. Pointing with your index finger is considered rude in some cultures, so Disneyland and later Disney World cast members point with two fingers instead. Some former employees insist that this could be a nod to Walt Disney's smoking habit. As part of the immaculate Disney guest experience, cast members are required to come up with an answer to any question, even if they had to research an answer or ask a colleague to avoid frustrating guest experiences. So they won... Unequivocal, like non-negotiable thing is you cannot say, oh, I don't know. You Apparently have so, to make yeah. something up. I've been told no. this is very common if you do um, business meetings in Japan as well, apparently. But if you're in business in Japan, if someone asks you a question, you're not supposed to say, I don't know. You have to say something like, uh, I'll, I'll look that up or I'll get back to you on that or something like that. Because saying, I don't know, essentially means I'm not the right person for the job. <laughs> like, oh, God. Apparently it's a cultural etiquette thing. And yeah, you can't point with one finger. I'm not sure which culture is pointing with one finger is offensive in, but it does ring a bell. I don't like, you shouldn't pathologize people not knowing something. It's okay not to know something. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know, I would agree. Le- yeah. le- learning is the process of knowing things that you previously didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> As dedicated as the park is to accuracy, there is one aspect that is purposefully wrong. The American flags. None of the flags flown within the Magic Kingdom or any park in Walt Disney World are correct in their design. They all have the wrong number of stripes or stars than they should. That's not for any conspiratorial reason. Accurate American flags are held to strict display and upkeep standards through the National Flag Code. These purposeful defects qualify these imitations as penance and allow the park to forgo having to abide by laws to lower them to half-mast, for instance. 
by law. Yeah, so there's the, the American flag code. There's certain ways you have to treat the stars and stripes. And so they've changed them all. So it's not technically the stars. Under pain of a visit from the police. I don't know if it goes that far, but it would it would be bad form anyway. Yeah, yeah. Oh well. It's interesting. They decided to actually modify the flags to kind of get around. It makes a lot of sense because yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole place is absolutely covered in them. You've had to put them all at half mast when an ex president died or something. He doesn't <laughs> close the park. Intricate pulley system. Just well, have like a bunch of guys in the back somewhere. Just yeah. get it all over and done. Well, we with got fifteen thousand of the motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> and my last bit of trivia here. This is a tangentially related. I mean, there's, there's a, a bit about Cinderella's castle coming up. I just came across this while doing my Disney trivia. Blew my mind. Thought it was interesting and stuck it on the end of the podcast. Are you ready for this? Yes. Pooh for president. Sensing weakness in McGovern and President Nixon. Pooh decided to toss his hat in the political fray with an interesting presidential campaign in 1972. There, Pooh received the Demopublican Party bid, as voted on by kids who entered a promo at Sears, and was announced at the forecourt of Cinderella Castle. Tigger served as his press secretary, and via press releases, several policy positions that mirrored real-life politics were released. His platform included disclosing the bare facts, a promise to put honey in every pot, a battle to lick the high price of ice cream cones, and other proposals aimed at earning the youth a vote. Pooh again ran for president in 1976, and this time he had his own theme song, Winnie the Pooh for President, sold as a single at Sears stores. I can't wait to listen to that song. Uh, it's got to be on Spotify. Yeah, right? it's got to be on yeah, Spotify, YouTube, something like that. But there you go. Winnie the Pooh ran his own presidential campaign. I, I, sorry, the funniest line in that is Tigger was his press secretary. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Eeyore for Secretary of State? I don't know. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to go and record the premium content now. Uh, What are you reviewing this week, Lim? Um, I have got a couple of horror films, and then there's about two or three titles that we didn't factor into the Winston premium last week. Ah, yeah, we have some more Ray Winston to do. Yeah, I just thought, um, yeah, there's about three more titles that I didn't didn't get around to mentioning, and, uh, yeah, with a couple of... uh, New well, one new horror, one new ish horror um, that I I watched and uh, I uh, enjoyed both of them enough to mention them. <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, I've got a little bit as well as you know, being without my laptop, I'm forced to watch terrestrial TV. Um, I had to watch some old movies again, and I've picked out a couple to chat about. One of them being Saturday Night Fever, which I've never actually sat down and watched from beginning to end. The before. unrated version. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, good. Yes. That's an interesting one because it's a film I've seen a million times, but only in bits. I can't remember the yeah. last time I actually sat down. Because there's an unrated it. version and there's a sanitized version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The unrated version is pretty linguistically brutal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, I've got a lot to say about that, so I thought I'd do a bit on the premium podcast. And there was, and there was another one, uh, the client with Tommy Lee Jones. Cool. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is, and old uh, Susie Sarandon, which is hilarious for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but, uh, yes, if you'd like to hear us chat about old movies this week, um, please do check out cinematalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. You can follow us on Twitter at CinemantalCast. You can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Lovely. And yeah, that wraps up for the free one this week. Please come and join us in the premium stuff. If not, uh, yes, see you next Tuesday. Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs> I've suddenly realised there's a Tuesday release date. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. Hey, hey, yeah. hey. That's how I'm going to sign yeah. off every week. Well, we, we mean it warmly. We do. You know, we from do. the bottom of our hearts, from the cockles. All right, take it easy, guys. <laughs> <laughs>